Oh. What is happening out there? <laughs> it sounds like your building is being swarmed right now, to be totally honest. <laughs> it's like very far off and quiet. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. It's a big week in Washington. Government funding runs out at the end of the day on Thursday, meaning lawmakers will have to pass some kind of budget measure or risk a partial government shutdown. The House is also scheduled to vote on the trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill, which the Senate passed in August. But some Democratic lawmakers have said they won't vote for it unless there's an agreement within the party on a multi-trillion-dollar social programs bill. The vote on the infrastructure bill has already been pushed from Monday to Thursday. In the background of all of this, the country is expected to hit its borrowing limit, also known as the debt ceiling, sometime between mid-October and mid-November. Lawmakers must raise or suspend the ceiling in order to pay for previously agreed on spending or face default. We're going to talk about the path forward and the political implications of it all. We're also going to take a look at how pollsters ask Americans to classify their political ideology and question what all the labels really mean. So here with me to discuss our editor-in-chief, Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey. And also with us is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. So let's talk about political identity, something we talk a lot about on this podcast, but we're going to get into the nitty-gritty today, and it's thanks to a question from a listener. So Thank you for sending in this question and a reminder that if you do have a question that you think might be good for a good use of polling or bad use of polling segment, always feel free to send it in. Or if you just have a question in general that may not be about polling at all, we'll we'll see if we can help you. But anyway, good use of polling or bad use of polling. This is the question we received, and and there's a little bit of buildup, so hang with me. Quote, I often see polls or am polled myself, and there is a question asking you how you would describe yourself politically, with choices like very liberal, somewhat liberal, moderate, somewhat conservative, very conservative. That's always confusing to me because I'm not sure where leftists or socialists fit in. So for example, I always answer very liberal because I am, meaning I believe very strongly in liberalism. But liberalism is as different from socialism as it is from conservatism. The more socialist a person is, the less liberal they are. On that limited scale, I would think socialists might answer somewhat liberal. But a lot of times it feels like polls are interpreted after the fact as if very liberal is the same as socialist. So that's this listener's kind of perspective on this question. I'll also say that I think you could say that the increase in the use of the word progressive has also jumbled the spectrum. Then likewise, within the Republican Party, alignment with Trump has become increasingly salient as opposed to alignment with traditionally conservative principles. So very conservative and very supportive of Trump are not the same thing either. Now, given all that setup, are polls that ask people to place themselves on this liberal conservative spectrum a good use of polling or bad use of polling? I mean, it's not... The polling, that's the salient issue so much as the overall spectrum, right? Right. I mean, I think polling people on their political identity, I'm not asking whether or not we should poll people on their political identity, more asking, is this spectrum useful? Very meta. I think the spectrum is good. I think it's useful. It is interesting, though, you know, something that has come up in research before, I'm thinking in particular here, Hakeem Jefferson, who is a professor at Stanford and writes for 538, is he's found in his research that a lot of Americans, particularly Black Americans, 
don't make use of the terms liberal and conservative when they're discussing politics. And so he's argued that sometimes better than asking this question of, are you liberal? Are you moderate? Is looking at policy preferences, as that can get at what a person really identifies as. I think the problem there is scaling that approach to be representative nationally, because it's not always clear cut what is a conservative issue and what is a liberal issue. I realized in our very nationalized politics, a lot of times there is is an easy stance on issues, but not always. Something we've looked at before is this idea of the moderate middle is a myth in terms of where voters stand on various issues. So I don't think it's a bad question, but it is one in which I think as our listener gets at, can be overinterpreted or there's like easy takeaways where it's like, okay, everyone very liberal is socialist, but I think he or she makes a good point here in that maybe that's not the right way to think about very liberal voters. Yeah, and you're collapsing all types of different dimensions on this one left-right spectrum, which doesn't necessarily make sense, right? And the term liberal in particular can mean a lot of different things in different contexts, right? Like a so-called classical liberal might be thought of as actually being somewhat conservative by American standards, although not in a Trumpian way. You know, people's beliefs are multidimensional, and we compress things down to neat little categories. And it's not the polling on that. It's the problem so much as just the fact that people want to oversimplify well, I think there's two questions there because it's not just asking people to compress down all of their views into a label. It's more that maybe the meaning of the words has changed or the words that people use to describe themselves politically have changed. Is that the case? I think people have become more consistent in their ideologies. There used to be more moderates. There used to be more people who were like in different boxes on different parts of the spectrum. And now people are more partisan and more consistent across your view on taxes and like gay marriage and all types of stuff is probably more correlated than it was like 20 or 30 years ago. Different pollsters ask this question in different ways. Like one thing we talked before on this podcast about was Echelon Insights even created different parties. Like, are you part of the Acela party? Are you part of the Nationalist Party? And they're kind of essentially, though, looking at two axes there, right? Like where you stand on economic issues. Are you conservative or are you liberal? And then they're also looking at like cultural issues. Are you liberal there or are you conservative there? And I think that's an interesting way to reconfigure this question. But what I think is still like interesting there is right now they have different metrics in which they're asking about how Democrats identify and how Republicans identify. But if you like group the different subgroups together, it still kind of matches on to Republicans are conservative, even if the definition of what it means to be conservative is changing and Democrats are more liberal than they are moderate, which gets at what Nate's saying. It's just like the two parties are much more polarized on those kind of ideologies than they used to be. Right. And I think no matter how you phrase that, that is often the takeaway from these types of polls. And going back to your initial question, Galen, I did say that this was a good use of polling, but I think when you have too many options presented, people are more likely to gravitate toward the center. And I was looking at a couple of research papers over the weekend that showed that. But I think at this point in politics, it makes sense to ask this question on a spectrum. And I was primarily looking at this from the Republican standpoint, but polls definitely show a distinction in how someone who is extremely conservative views the future of the Republican Party versus someone who is fairly or moderately conservative. And what they found is that extremely conservative or very conservative, basically the people on the farthest right, are more inclined to say that they want 
Trump to run in 2024 than someone who is in the fairly or moderately conservative camp. Now, overwhelmingly, both groups do want Trump to run for for president in 2024. But if you were on the furthest right, you are more inclined to say that's the case. So I think asking on a spectrum is a good way to kind of tease out the distinctions for how our politics are currently. But isn't this here kind of an example of how the meaning of words has changed and maybe makes this weirdly less useful. I'm thinking if you go back to the 2016 Republican primary, the most conservative voters were all for Ted Cruz. And it was the more moderate Republicans and Republicans who were maybe more idiosyncratic who supported Trump. But now the people who consider themselves most conservative are most inclined to support Trump. I guess, is that indicative of how just conservatives have evolved and the most conservative people now do really like Trump? Or have people taken alignment with Trump to mean conservative and now say they're very conservative as a way of just saying that they really support Trump? In some ways, Trump is like a more European, I guess, type of conservative, where a lot of issues are emanated by racial animus and anti-immigrant sentiment which you can debate whether it was true or the previous iteration of the, of the GOP or not. But like, yeah, of course these things are are fluid. And Trump was not conservative in like the Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan sense of conservative exactly. But unfortunately, the things that he does stand for are also part of conservative traditions around the world. Yeah. So Dan Hopkins, who writes for the site, and then Hans Noel, of two political scientists, they've kind of looked at this question since 2016. And like, you bring up an interesting point, Galen, in that Trump really didn't start off as the candidate that appealed to the diehard section of the Republican Party. And I think you could argue, too, with Liz Cheney being ousted from leadership, Mitt Romney, not in a perilous position because he's representing Utah, but still maybe a minority voice within the party, that Trump is not winning those pockets of conservatism, but that pocket is shrinking in terms of influence within the party. And then what Hopkins and Noel found in their research was just that, right, like when you ask voters, what do you think of this senator or this representative's background? Those who are most like closely identified to Trump. So let's say Tom Cotton, Holly, Lindsey Graham, who are really kind of all over the spectrum when you look at how they actually vote in Congress. People are like, oh, no, they're all very conservative because it was proximity to Trump that mattered. And I do think, you know, it's kind of redefining how Republicans think about their identity versus what it used to mean to be conservative within the party. What about on the left end of the spectrum? To what degree has identity there evolved? And to what degree does moderate, somewhat liberal, liberal, very liberal serve to help delineate amongst different forms of being a Democrat? You know, I'm thinking in particular that people who are often more aligned with Bernie Sanders don't like the term liberal, prefer the term progressive, may identify as democratic socialist. Um, And see liberals as this kind of, you know, the new Democrat of the Clinton era, which is like globalist and pro-free trade in all circumstances and so on and so forth. So does the liberal identity still work for trying to delineate between different segments of the Democratic Party? I mean, I think there are issues with using the term progressive. Our former colleague, Perry Bacon Jr., illustrated that in a previous story he did. He pointed out that both AOC and Andrew Cuomo both use the term progressive to describe their politics. And I would say that they're pretty different on the ideological spectrum. So I feel like there might be a better way to tease out those distinctions within the Democratic Party, maybe using a different term. I'm just not sure off the top of my head what a better term might be. 
So Alex, let's actually stick with that idea for a second. If we were charged with coming up with a different maybe spectrum or set of questions to ask people to try to understand how they fall on the political spectrum, does anyone have an idea for what might be better? I know you're saying that this is a good use of polling, but it seems like there are real challenges with it. There are. I think if I were a pollster asking these questions, I would probably include descriptions of what each term meant, since the definition of things like socialist, progressive, et cetera, have changed so much over time. But I don't have off the top of my head an idea of the best way to measure this. I like, as Sarah was mentioning earlier, what Echelon Insights has been doing, asking about, you know, whether you're a moderate Democrat, a Bernie Sanders style Democrat, or like a mainstream liberal Democrat. I think that's slightly better, but even some of those distinctions are a little hard to understand. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what the difference is between a moderate Democrat versus like a mainstream liberal Democrat. I could see some confusion there. So maybe the best way to kind of avoid any confusion going forward would be just to include descriptions on what these terms actually mean. Yeah, I think the notion that there are like five or six political identities, like the Echelon Insights poll gets at it's still true, even if we kind of compress it into two major parties in a two-party country like the U.S. Just for our listeners' edification, this Echelon Insights poll that we're referencing here is a recent type of polling that the research firm has been doing. And they try to break down the different divisions within the party. And so for Democrats, as you already mentioned, Alex, the breakdown is moderate Democrat, which is 42% of respondents, Bernie Sanders-style Democrat, which is 26% of respondents, mainstream liberal Democrat, which is 25% of respondents, and unsure, which is 7% of respondents. On the Republican side, they asked people to identify as either a conservative Republican, which was 40% of respondents, Trump Republican, which was 29% of respondents, moderate Republican, which was 27% of respondents, or unsure, which was 4% of respondents. So now people have that in their minds. That was a lot of numbers on a lot of different categorizations. But Nate, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, don't they have like other cute labels too, like Acela? Well, after they've asked all these questions, they try to create different parties based on how people have responded to the questions. But they don't ask people straight up, like, are you an Acela Democrat? I mean, the term liberal has kind of become orphaned in different ways. Maybe people kind of on the socialist left don't love the term, but also some people would say, well, liberal should mean more classical liberal, more kind of tolerant and not like the way the left arguably is today and stuff like that. And so, I mean, nobody likes their their label, right? It's a bit like no one actually says they live in upstate New York. They're like, oh, the next county above me is where upstate New York starts. And I don't live in upstate unless you're in like Canada then or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think the fact too that like, you know, no matter how much nuance you want for this scale, we're still a two-party system. And I think the biggest takeaway from here is that People aren't really flipping between the two parties when they're deciding who to vote for. And a conservative identity, whether that means I'm very pro-Trump or I'm not, is still like a Republican identity overall. Whereas liberal, whether I'm like very, very liberal or just moderately liberal, is still a Democratic identity. And I think, again, for that echelons grouping, you know, if you look at the August poll where 42 percent said they were moderate, 26 percent the Bernie style Democrat, 25 percent mainstream, if you add the Sanders style and the mainstream liberal, that's 51%. And it still reflects Gallup polling that shows that, well, Democrats are more so likely to say that they're liberal than moderate. Similarly, for the conservatives, if you add up likes Trump with conservative, you get an overwhelming of majority of Republicans identifying as conservative versus moderate, which also kind of mirrors other polls. And so that's why it's like, 
I think the different categorizations, particularly when you bring in like different stances on policies and how voters feel about that, is really telling. But I think there's also like maybe a desire to overcomplicate this when it's like this is a useful metric for understanding Republicans, conservative, Democrats, liberal. Well, so then what's the point of even asking people is there any point of, maybe this is a bad use, maybe all of this is a bad use of polling. Is there any point in asking people about their political identity beyond their party? It has changed over time, by the way. Sarah yes. mentioned that now a majority of Democrats identify as liberal. That was not true. In 1994, only 25% of Democrats said they were liberal. So it's probably because the label's been rehabilitated in some ways, partly because you have more sorting between the parties. You know, Democrat versus Republican is probably the most useful signifier in some sense, more than liberal versus conservative. A hundred percent. I think it's curious though, like moderate, as Nate was saying that liberal has grown within the Democratic Party, like moderate has shrunk within the Republican Party. We've seen that on like a legislator level in Congress, but you also see that among voters. And so I kind of use these polls then as a proxy to understand where do the somewhat liberal or the moderate voters who don't necessarily have deeply entrenched views on either issue, like which party are they falling in? And right now it seems to be largely the Democratic Party. Does everyone agree here? Like, is this at the end of the day still a useful endeavor? I think so. Yeah, useful is a, a low bar to clear, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe it's a high bar. I mean, we're, we're devoting time to it on the 538 Politics podcast. And we wouldn't just want party ID, right? Like, we can agree with that. We want more than just, like, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican. Yeah, I think it's good to see where the parties are going over time. Because obviously a Sanders Democrat is different from a Manchin Democrat. And so I think it's good to tease out, okay, here are the parts of the Democratic Party that are gaining traction. Here are the ones that are losing traction. And same on the Republican side as well. So I think that's probably one of the more useful reasons to ask this on a spectrum rather than just ask Republican or Democrat. Yeah. And maybe, as we often say with pollsters, these different iterations, like trying different things, are also useful. Because on the one hand, the very liberal to very conservative spectrum is useful because you can see that change over time because we've used those terms for a long enough period of our history that you can see how internally the parties have changed. But these new things, you know, asking about a Bernie Sanders-style Democrat or a Trump-style Republican that is a question that would not have made sense seven years ago. And so seeing just now how people's identities have evolved enough to be able to answer that question is also interesting. Wrapping up here, is there a kind of question you would want to ask people about their political identity that you don't see in polling? We do see it in polling. So this is a little bit of a cough out, <laughs> but I really like the... Um, are you culturally conservative, culturally liberal? And then pairing that up with like, are you fiscally conservative or fiscally liberal? I think there's a lot of interesting mismatches there. And this again was an Echelon Insights poll, but they found a section of both parties that identified as populist, whether that was like Sanders or Trump aligned, and where they really were separated on was cultural issues. So I think a lot of questions that kind of get at how Americans feel about both like the economy, but then cultural issues, because so much of our politics is culture. I think that's a really valuable layer to bring in. And we'd like to see more of that. I realize it's complicated to do. Yeah. I mean, some of the pandemic related behavior, like vaccination foremost among them is like, it's kind of amazing how polarized it has become, right? Because it's like not purely identity, like affects your chance of getting COVID, affects your community. I mean, <laughs> we should not lose sight of the fact that polarization is increasing and is kind of in some sense like the most powerful force in American politics, at least, right? And that kind of governs everything else from attacks on <laughs> democracy to battling the pandemic to everything, really. 
And so whatever kind of labels you put on those categories, in some ways, it's like an easier problem now because everything is so aligned, right? There are not a lot of conservative Democrats anymore. There used to be. There are not a lot of moderate Republicans anymore. There used to be. Everyone's just kind of at one of these polls, not everyone, but like more and more people at least. I actually just thought of something, distrust. There's not a lot of polling on that. And it is asymmetrical in the sense that we understand that Republicans have more distrust in institutions, which is based on some polls. But I don't think we have enough. I haven't seen like a distrust axis that is brought into polls to kind of understand where Democrats fall on it versus Republicans. I think that could be interesting. Sarah, I think you kind of talked about this. And again, I think this might be something that is seen in polls, but maybe not super often, but asking people how their views have evolved over the last few years. So if there's a way to say like back in 2010, did you identify as fiscally conservative, but now 10 years later, you're more social on those issues and just kind of like seeing, you know, how people's political affiliation in that sense is changing over time. Yeah, these are all good ideas. Pollsters take note. (laughs) Is this a good use of polling or bad use of polling? Have we all answered? I think I've heard a couple good uses of polling. Is that a consensus opinion? Yeah, it's it's fine. It's fine. Good job. <laughs> it's fine. Keep trying. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's as good as you're going to get from Nate Silver. It's fine. <laughs> Let's move on and talk about the deadlines and legislation that lawmakers are dealing with this week. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As I mentioned at the top, lawmakers, particularly Democrats, have a lot on their plates this week. And so we can maybe split the agenda into two buckets, which is the time-sensitive issues, which is the debt ceiling and government funding expiration. And then there's the legislative priorities, which are the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the social programs bill. So let's first talk about the time-sensitive issues. And of course, this is all tied up in one kind of big mess, so we don't have to neatly silo them. 
But we'll begin with the time-sensitive issues, and then we'll move on to the legislative priorities. So government funding expires at the end of the month, and that's the end of the day on Thursday. Not extending government funding would result in a partial government shutdown, which has happened before, as people probably know, as recently as the beginning of 2019. Then there's the debt ceiling, which is the limit on how much the federal government can borrow. And just based on already agreed upon spending, we are projected to hit that limit sometime between mid-October and mid-November. If lawmakers don't raise or suspend that limit, the U.S. would effectively default, something that's never happened before. The debt limit has been used largely by Republicans, but not exclusively in partisan brinkmanship before, and we've never gone over the cliff. So Democrats have put these two issues together, a government funding extension and debt ceiling suspension, in a single package, which the House passed last week. Republicans in the Senate have said they will vote against the bill because they will not provide any votes to raise the debt ceiling. So that is where we sit at the beginning of this week. Government shutdown, end of the day on Thursday. Debt ceiling, we're not sure when, but these two issues have been tied together by Democrats. Republicans are saying, no. What happens now? Yeah, we're in a dangerous game of political brinkmanship is kind of the short of it. I think the baseline argument for Republicans is they are saying Democrats are spending too much. They're going at it alone with this $3.5 trillion bill, and they control Congress, the White House, and so therefore they have the power to raise the debt ceiling on their own. And to be clear, like this is true But Republicans' refusal to join in this isn't typical. The debt is both parties' problems and that a lot of the deficit was accrued under Trump's administration. You know, if you look at that chart over time, it just keeps going up and up and up and up. Every administration, regardless of president, spending up the debt. And then the other thing here is that when Trump was in office, Democrats helped GOP lawmakers in suspending the debt ceiling three different times during the Trump administration. So like in the past, parties have worked together on this. But as we all know, with McConnell, he's kind of a king at crafting his own justifications for things. And here, there are already ad buys in the works, like Republicans are going to go hard on Democrats for spending too much money. And that will be a key talking point for them ahead of the midterms. And so now they want to force Democrats' hand to use the same budgetary move that they would pass through this huge spending plan to also include the debt ceiling. And like Democrats can do that. It looks like they'll be kind of forced to do that. They're, of course, going to like blame Republicans for making them do that. But that seems to be where this is headed. And it just makes things a lot more complicated for Democrats trying to get through their big spending plan. But it seems as if the calculation right now for Republicans is spending too much money is y'all's problem and we're going to attack you for it and not work with you on it. I think the Senate will meet this afternoon to take up a motion to advance a bill that would avert a government shutdown and raise the debt ceiling. But I'm under the impression that the vote is purely symbolic at this point because McConnell and Senate Republicans have said for weeks that they won't support the debt ceiling. And then after that likely happens, I think Democrats will plan to use this failed bill to turn the tables on Republicans and say they're to blame for the government shutdown and everything like this. But a lot of this honestly, it's just coming down to partisanship and Republicans and Democrats really just not finding common ground on this issue. So what do we expect to happen here? Sarah, you said that you expect that Democrats will accept Republicans saying that they're not going to vote to increase or suspend the debt ceiling, and they will sort out the debt ceiling through reconciliation, which is the process that they would pass their started at $3.5 trillion social programs bill. 
and then separate out a government funding extension, which they might be able to pass with Republican help by the end of Thursday. Does that seem like what's going to happen at this point? Or do Democrats dig in their heels and say, no, Republicans, you cut taxes and spent a lot of money under Trump. Don't pretend the debt is our problem alone. That's a possibility. This very much is kind of like a game of chicken and who's going to say chicken first between the two parties, because Republicans at the end of the day also don't really want the U.S. to default on its loans, just because like we are talking about this catastrophic worst case scenario if this happens. And actually, Jeffrey Skelly, he's working on a piece that talks about why this debate around raising the debt limit isn't really something that needs to happen anyway. Like it probably should be taken out of Congress. But in the same way that piece we had done earlier this year, talking about expanding the House beyond 435 seats, probably won't be taken up anytime soon because of the fights there. It's probably the same for the limit as well in terms of both parties want to use it as a football from time to time. I think what's different here is just because of the coronavirus, we like don't really know yet when the limit will be met. And so it kind of makes this a ticking time bomb and difficult to move on. But I think if Republicans and McConnell at this point has been adamant that he is not going to raise the debt limit, he wants to make that part of the 2022 midterm strategy, I think does force Democrats to start scrambling on the budget reconciliation process. And you're saying that the debt limit question kind of be done away with, in part because All of the spending has already been approved by both parties or a majority or whatever anyway. This is not a question about spending priorities. Those questions have already been asked and answered. Nate, you're as close as we've got to a game theorist here. (laughs) What are the different incentives and how does this resolve itself? I mean, it resolves itself in the debt limit. You know, I mean, brinksmanship usually involves you go up to the brink and then you pull back from the brink. I don't think the nation's going to breach its debt limit. I mean, there's different views on like what the process can be. I think the consensus view is that you can actually do it via reconciliation, which is why the GOP can threaten to filibuster and whatever else. It's all kind of silly. It's all kind of silly that we have this like debt limit that, as Sarah said, is separate from how much is actually being spent. It's kind of so that you have certain rules that people respect in the Senate that you can pass do X and Y with 50 votes, but PD and Q require 60 votes. It's all kind of stupid. It's all very stupid. And some like observer, if they came out from outer space or a foreign country, be like, what the f- is wrong with the U.S. Senate that it has all these very weird rules? And you wouldn't really be able to offer a good explanation for them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one answer. <laughs> that's one. <laughs> no, but like, they, I mean, the game theory is that I guess it must serve someone's purpose because the rules aren't going to be changed. And the purpose is like partisanship and people will kind of claw out whatever small partisan advantage. I mean, do I think that the debt ceiling is going to be a major topic in November 22, not unless it's breached, right? <laughs> right. But there's no real constraining or restraining effect, right? Like McConnell clearly he doesn't care about being seen as like a good ally of progress in the Democrats' way. He doesn't care if he's seen as being obstructionist. Polling suggests that Democrats would be blamed if you did have some problem with the debt limit. And so people are just kind of playing out their hand in like the way that people usually do in, in Washington. This is one of my least favorite storylines in Congress is the fight over the debt limit and the government shutdown. I hate it so much. (laughs) Well, then let's move on. You know what? Let's move (laughs) on. It's important, though. Thank you. It seems, I mean, obviously it's a very important issue, but it seems like what we're saying here is that the likeliest thing to happen is Democrats say, okay, McConnell, you're not going to have any Republican votes for raising the debt ceiling. We'll put it in the reconciliation bill because 
polling shows that voters would more than Republicans blame Democrats if there was a problem with the debt ceiling anyway, and then move on, use some sort of continuing resolution or whatever to fund the government until Democrats pass their new government funding bill. And that's that. Did I understand everyone's thoughts correctly? Well, I would just add, to be clear, if McConnell is successful in forcing Democrats' hands on this, like, it is going to be tricky for Democrats to get everything together. Like, you know, they've already had all these talks with the budget parliamentarian. Now they have to go back and do all of that. It could throw into jeopardy passing this $3.5 trillion spending plan, because now we're brinkering on the edge of defaulting on our debt, and Americans might be like, hey, that matters a lot more to me than you passing through this big infrastructure plan. And I think what McConnell and Republicans are doing is overshadowing that debate and overshadowing a signature piece of the Democrats' platform, because now there's this real possibility that we won't be able to pay our loans. And so I think it's like, this will be challenging for Democrats. It's why I think they're making a big stink about like, look, this isn't normal happening in Congress. Like Republicans should be working on this. It's their debt too. It's just a question of, I wonder to what extent that resonates with American voters. Like right now, as Nate said, it shows that Americans would blame Democrats for this, at least, you know, in one morning consult poll. But I'm curious how that continues to play out if Republicans are kind of seen as the aggressor in this, et cetera. And the numbers on that poll, in case anyone's keeping tabs, are 33% of registered voters said they would blame Democrats. 16% said they would blame Republicans if the U.S. defaults on its debt. Obviously, according to this number, a lot of people who are not yet sure who they would blame. So those are the time-sensitive issues. Let's move on to the legislative priorities. So there's the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which was already passed in the Senate in August. And there's, as we've mentioned, this larger multi-trillion dollar social programs bill that is kind of the key to Democrats' legislative priorities under at least the first part of the Biden administration. Now, the dynamic here is that Moderates just want to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, get it out of the way. It's already passed the Senate. If Democrats came together on it in the House, maybe Republicans would even join them. They could pass it, and then that would be behind everyone. Maybe then they could focus on the social programs bill. So progressives have said, we're not going to give our votes to this infrastructure bill until we hash out an agreement on the social programs bill, because if they just pass the infrastructure bill, I think they're concerned that some of the more conservative Democrats in the party would not throw their support behind the larger social programs bill. So once again, we have an impasse. What are the different incentives of the parts of the party that are, because this is kind of up to the Democrats themselves. They don't need Republican votes on any of this because they can use reconciliation. What do people want and why? You mean in life, man? <laughs> Nate, if you want to take that question a different way, I'll give you 30 seconds. <laughs> no, I didn't have any thoughts about, about politics. And I was thinking, what do people really want out of life, Galen? And why? You know, I don't know. You're throwing the question back to me. Like a good coffee to take the rest of the day off after we record this podcast. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Maybe some whiskey. I don't know. Like a sunny day. <laughs> okay. We got to get back on track here. What happens here? Because there's like the main core of the Democratic lawmakers, which are just with the Biden administration on their priorities. But then there are the further left and more centrist Democrats who are really in conflict here about how to handle all this. And so we're going to learn from this process which part of the parties are most powerful and whether they can keep their party together when the rubber hits the road. You touched on this earlier, Galen, but I think Democrats kind of put themselves in a bind when they decided to tie these two bills together, because now we're in a position where either 
it's possible none of these bills pass or both of them pass. And if neither of the bills pass, that's obviously not great heading into the midterms, heading into 2024. Biden would really only have the COVID bill to point to as like the main victory that he delivered for the American people during his presidency, assuming that they also get nothing done on voting rights and immigration reform, both of which I'm also very skeptical about. But I think The first problem there is tying these two things together, because I think if they hadn't done that, maybe the infrastructure bill would have already passed by now. I've long questioned that strategy too, Alex. Like it didn't make sense to me. But, you know, I think as we've gotten more involved in this process in terms of watching it play out, it really does seem as if Democrats are split between more moderate members and more progressive members. And so I think Pelosi's calculation around holding the bipartisan infrastructure bill and waiting to pass both was, well, if we pass this bipartisan one first, progressives are going to worry that the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill becomes $1.5 trillion and they don't get what they want. And they've been, you know, threatening to withhold their votes. Like there was a story out today that the vote originally on the bipartisan bill was supposed to be on the 27th because moderate Democrats had demanded that. Now it's going to be Thursday this week. And I'm not so sure that won't get bumped again because it's like reportedly 60 progressive Democrats said that they won't vote on the bipartisan bill, which would sink it. And I think it's this dance between they want to pass both because the party is so divided, at least within Congress and representatives and senators willing to take a stance on it, where it's like progressives don't trust moderates to actually honor the bigger reconciliation bill. And moderates are worried that progressives are going to ultimately kind of tank this bipartisan bill. And so it's this complex complicated dance that I really didn't understand in the beginning, but I think speaks to what you were getting at, that like these two factions within the party are kind of maybe, I don't know if they're equally powerful, but like they are at odds and they are kind of forcing the Democrat strategy here in ways that I don't think are necessarily the best for legislation. And I think the point in moving into Thursday was that there would be enough progress on the reconciliation bill. So progressives feel okay voting for the infrastructure bill by then. But I mean, I'm not sure what could happen between now and Thursday, because the last I saw, I don't think Manchin has given like a specific number since that one to 1.5 trillion regarding what he will support. And without a number, it's hard for Democrats to move forward and say, okay, here's what needs to be cut. Here's what we can add. It's hard to do the negotiation process without knowing from the key players in Congress what they will and won't support. Yeah, I mean, the three most powerful people in America are Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and uh, Joe Manchin. (laughs) You know, there's not much way around it, and he's quite inscrutable. It's not clear what his goals are exactly. Democrats don't really have very much leverage over him because it's a state that Biden lost by 30-some points. Yeah, and so it's probably like a bit frustrating to cover the story as a journalist because you're just kind of sitting there trying to figure out what Joe Manchin feels like doing. And it's not the entire story, but it's, it's a big part of the story. Yeah, I would add to that. I do think a fourth, and it's less of a person, I think it is more of a caucus because their strength is in numbers, but like progressives, they are not afraid, at least at this point, 
with bucking with Democrats' agenda on this. I think, if anything, we've seen with Pelosi over the years, and we're working on a piece later this week, too, that looks at our Biden score data and how Democrats have voted in Congress versus our Trump score data and how Republicans voted under Trump. And like, one takeaway, at least so far, has been that Democrats are much more unified in terms of how they vote. Like Pelosi does exercise a great amount of control, I think, over keeping her party in line. But I do think progressive Democrats are being very vocal this time around and that, hey, like we ran on this platform. This is a key part of Biden's administration. We are going to upset this bill if we don't get what we want. And like we did see that with the Affordable Care Act, different fight and different Democrats upsetting it. But I wouldn't be surprised, too, if they try to walk away from this, even if it costs Democrats overall. So are the differences within the party that we're seeing in Washington reflective of the actual differences that exist amongst party voters? And the broader question here is, what is motivating the different actors here to do what they're doing. If you look at the actual items in the bill, a lot of them are fairly popular. So I think for the moderates, it's more about fear of a big price tag, that number 3.5 trillion. I don't know why 3.5 trillion motivates voters differently than 2.4 trillion or anything else, but none of it's necessarily all that, <laughs> all that rational. Yeah, and there's an interesting, Jay Paul had said recently today within the House that if the bill's price tag shrinks, like one way Democrats could kind of craftily get around this is reduce the number of years that the bill pays for some of the programs. And that's very much the preferred option of progressives, right? Like another option would be reducing the number of people who can take advantage of the programs. That's less attractive to them or reducing the number of programs in the bill. To Alex's point, like we still don't really know what's in the bill. And that's, that makes it really hard, I think, for people to kind of understand what is actually in this and what are they, you know, support in support of or against, you know, some things like climate change have not pulled as well as making sure that human infrastructure and particularly like at-home care workers are part of that, that has pulled better. And so it'll be interesting to see like what actually makes it. So it looks like most of the Democratic Party when you look at the actors on the left and the actors on the right, most of the Democratic Party is just, what, sitting in the middle, just saying, we'll support the Biden agenda. What has caused these two segments of the party to kind of go at each other? Are they just representative of what is actually a broader divide within the party, but most people are staying quiet? I've heard that there's a sentiment that Mansion Cinema's opposition to the price tag is giving cover to some other moderates who maybe don't want to speak up or feel like they can't speak up. But, I mean, obviously, they're the two biggest and probably most vocal barriers to things like the price tag, as Nate mentioned earlier. Yeah, like, in some ways, Democrats have the narrowest possible majorities. And it's kind of amazing that they get anything done. <laughs> if all you need is, like, one kind of idiosyncratic senator to object to something and you no longer have a majority, then that can be problematic. At least for Manchin, it makes some sense in the sense of he comes from a very red state, which is different than, like, Cinema, who comes from a purple state and probably will wind up losing a primary challenge when she's up. But yeah, I mean, if you win by the narrowest possible margins, then it's inherently kind of precarious. It is really hard, I think, too, to kind of understand how big these different coalitions are, too, as Alex was getting at. Because it's like you just have Mansion Cinema are dominating the headlines, but 
I do think there's some cover for more moderate Democrats in the Senate. I think in the House, it might be a little bit more clear cut. Like it was just nine moderates who had earlier tried to force the bipartisan vote earlier. I think it's maybe we have less of a clear sense than how many progressives kind of fall into Jayapal's camp of like, okay, we demand this X, Y, and Z be in the bill. And, you know, it's also the media loves conflict. So it's completely possible that we are kind of overhyping some of the tensions that exist. But it does seem at least from the outset here, that this, because the two bills are kind of packaged together, has made passing either very complicated. Well, I should say here, the media does love conflict. And that's oftentimes what we focus on when we cover Washington instead of sometimes the specifics of policies. The way that Democrats have gone about this, i.e. writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, going straight to cable news, basically attacking each other in the press And we also know that the longer you debate something in the public's eye, the more unpopular it becomes usually. And so if Democrats are thinking about their own best interests here, the way that they're treating this in the press is probably not helping their case, even if we in the media do like to cover conflict. Is that fair to say? I mean, isn't it always like this, though? I think it partly is. Look, Republicans couldn't repeal the ACA because their caucus fell apart. That was pretty public and full of conflict. So Matt Grossman, who writes for 538, he had made an interesting point that part of the dynamic we're seeing here as well is that at least in this age of social media, a lot of politicians feel more comfortable with putting themselves over the party because they have to worry about a primary challenger or their re-election bid. And so a lot of the op-eds in the journal or the op-eds in the post, that's all part of a calculated strategy that is often centered on the politician themselves, regardless of what's actually good for like the party's agenda. And I think that is something that we have seen more of, even if maybe the outcome isn't changing that much in terms of like the party often will kind of rally around and pass the thing they want. But to your point, that didn't happen with Republicans' efforts to repeal the ACA. So, you know, I do think to some extent the ways in which politicians are presenting themselves and fighting against things here is something we have to take somewhat seriously because they they could tank it. All right. Wrapping up here, what is at stake in all of this? Whether Democrats kind of come together and pass these two bills, just one, neither? I think the substantive impact of the legislation is more important than the politics, like I don't mean it in any kind of particularly ideological way, but I think next year is likely to be fought over COVID and how people think things are going in the country. And I'm not sure that necessarily is going to matter as much electorally as everyone else seems to think. I mean, there'll definitely be like a narrative if if things collapse of Biden being a failed presidency. But how much does that narrative matter? I'm I'm not sure exactly. I just think what's at stake is if like if neither of these bills pass, if one passes, it's really just another Biden priority <laughs> down the toilet. Democrats already suffered a setback earlier when the Senate parliamentarian ruled that they couldn't include a pathway for citizenship for immigrants in the upcoming reconciliation bill. And I'm skeptical. I know we haven't talked about this much, but I'm skeptical a lot will happen on voting rights. So these things failing would just be another sign of shaky leadership on the Democratic side. And I talked about this before, but it's not great for them to have not too many solid victories that they can point to heading into the midterm cycle, where the president's party generally faces an uphill battle to retain control of the House. And then, of course, we have 2024. We don't know if Trump's going to run again. So I just think overall, this would not be best for the Democratic's agenda if nothing passes. 
Right. I mean, as Alex got at, it's now very unlikely that immigration is going to be taken up in a serious way in the rest of the year or the following. We saw also with the big police reform bills that didn't pass through a bipartisan vote. I do think there are interesting dynamics here in which given the obstructionism that you're seeing from Republicans, and I think it's it's smart politics for them, but like Democrats will interpret this and try to paint this as obstructionism. Maybe there's a shift in terms of the bipartisanship that people like Manchin, Cinema have tried to push forward in the Democratic Party, particularly because I think some of the options for that we've seen are really limited. I think though, at the end of the day, Democrats control Congress, control the White House. And so the bar is gonna be quite high for them, I think in terms of getting some through because they have the power to do that and whether, you know, they'll be able to keep their party in line. Yeah, it's been an interesting dynamic so far because Democrats have chosen to pursue big legislation that can be tied to reconciliation in their first year. There are other priorities, that voting rights bill that you've mentioned, immigration reform, raising the minimum wage, for example, some issues pertaining to climate change, can't go through reconciliation. Some of those we've already heard rulings from the parliamentarian on, but others we might assume. So we've laid out the tensions here when it comes to these spending priorities. Will Democrats ever get to the rest of their agenda? Is this kind of it as far as the Democratic agenda goes in in the first two years of the Biden administration? I mean, on some of those other issues you hit on, Galen, I feel like a lot of it just comes down to this question of ending or circumventing the filibuster. And you have some Democrats in the Senate, Manchin and Cinema. And their opposition to doing that seems pretty set in stone. So I feel like on things, particularly voting rights, it makes it a lot harder for the party because I think it's going to be very rare that they find 10 Republicans to get on board with them. And I also don't think uh, Manchin and Cinema are going to change their mind on abolishing the filibuster. In theory, isn't Manchin making noises about some bipartisan voting rights bill? <laughs> theory. <laughs> In theory. (laughs) I mean, he is, but him like griping about it in an op-ed doesn't mean he's going to do the things necessary to make sure that bill passes. I also think if McConnell is willing to play the game of brinkmanship on the debt limit to the extent that he is, don't you think he would do the same for voting rights? Like it will be painted as Democrats are like trying to make our elections less secure. And I think right now the only Republican, at least publicly, who has kind of backed Manchin's ideas was Murkowski, if I'm I'm not mistaken, which isn't really, you know, uh, well, enough. Well, she counts, right? <laughs> she counts, but but only barely. One I'm at sorry. a time. <laughs> I mean, she counts if she can cut herself into 10 different pieces and make them all lawmakers in the United States Senate. Yeah, it's like some Buffalo Bill, Silence of the Lambs, you know. But uh, in theory, you think if Joe Manchin can be persuaded that we have to do this to save our democracy, that seems like a slightly easier sell than you just have to spend a bunch of money. But with these weird reconciliation rules, it's just, you know, you can do budgetary things, but not other things. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's an argument that could part of what we're seeing with the reconciliation bill and the fight around it be kind of like Democrats showing that, hey, the filibuster has its limits. Look how hobbled we are. I'm not sure I really like buy that political calculation that's happening. I know Manchin has been pretty adamant in saying, like, I want to keep the filibuster intact. But like it has been floated for like, at least for voting rights. Could there be an exception? And I think he had mentioned something about like the talking filibuster, but still hasn't really signaled that he's on board with that change. But maybe. So 
we deal with statistics here at 538. We categorize things, we rate them, whatever. This is not going to be an empirical exercise here, but let's take the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the social programs bill, immigration reform, voting rights. Of those four things, can we rate how likely you think they are to pass during Biden's first two years in office? So infrastructure is first one through 10. 10 being it will definitely pass. 10 being it will definitely pass, zero being it will not pass. I would put infrastructure and reconciliation together at like a eight, since the two bills are pretty tied together. Okay. Voting rights, I'd put at two. Yeah. That's so- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and immigration, I'm going to put at like a five and a half. Oh, interesting. Oh, really? I, I, I put like zero <laughs> on immigration. I, I just, only because I feel like Democrats want to kind of pass the buck there. I, I think that's just chaos for them to try to get something together that works. Just also because Republicans are so motivated by the issue. But I'm curious, Alex, why five? Because Biden, I feel like he kind of has to. Like in the span of a week, a push to create a path for citizenship for kids brought over illegally to the country as kids face a serious setback. As you mentioned, Sarah, bipartisan negotiations on policing collapsed. And then there were those horrible images of the Haitian migrants that circulated. I just feel like Biden can't go down as doing like absolutely nothing for immigration. I just feel like that will put him in not a great place with the Latino vote, which we already saw was kind of moving toward the GOP in the last election. This could potentially have an impact with his standing for Black Americans, too. So I just feel like they have to get something done. The reason why I gave it a five and a half is because I don't know how they're going to do that. Okay, so we have two eights, a five and a half, and a two. Nate, what are you? So why are we not using actual percentages? This seems like some dodge. You can just multiply by 10 to get the percentages. All right, so- Bring it, do some percentages. If we do percentages, <laughs> it's gonna be seem more empirical than it actually is. Well, we have, we've had that problem before. <laughs> if you wanna use percentages, Nate, you can use percentages. I won't. Infrastructure and <laughs> social programs, immigration and voting rights, how do you rate them on a scale from, I think we're using zero to 10? Yeah, I think infrastructure is a 7.5. Immigration is <laughs> a 0.3. <laughs> and voting rights is a 2.1. And so are you saying both bipartisan infrastructure and social programs are 7.5? I mean, I guess if you separate them out, the infrastructure is like at 8.8 and the social program is like a 6.9 or something. Okay. Oh, you put voting rights above immigration? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I would shoot for what it's worth. I mean, I think they're both probably going to be casualties of this 50-person Senate, but I think at least the activist class of the Democratic Party think of voting rights and maybe we should kind of, I mean, that voting rights term is a little bit vague. Some of it's kind of election integrity legislation and how much that's being transformed into one or the other is an, an open question. But like, I think that there will be a group of activists who say it's unacceptable not to pass something. And that probably will still mean that nothing passes. But I think there's more urgency there than on immigration. All right, Sarah, take us home. Yeah, you know, I just put in these bills into our, you know, legislative forecast model. Kidding. I'm so glad that we do not (laughs) issue projections on this stuff. I would go a smidge lower than Nate, I think, on the infrastructure and spending plans. I put that at like a seven. I think something will go through, but I could see it being really watered down and a lot of anger there. Immigration, I'm a hard zero. I think that will be punted to another time. Just because I think Alex brought up some really good points. I just think it's also something that administration after administration just keeps passing the buck on. And then voting rights, like 3.5. I do think 
Democrats, and Alex has written this for the site, will try to make this a moral argument. And of course, they have to convince their own members of it. But I do think it's something, as Nate was saying too, that the Democratic activist base really cares about. And particularly if I think the infrastructure bills are kind of watered down, it's acrimonious, people are left unsatisfied, I think efforts around voting rights will like be redoubled, where it's like, okay, we absolutely have to do this. And I think Democrats will try to push on that more than they would immigration. All right. Well, of course, only time will tell here, but let's leave it there. So thank you, Sarah, Alex, and Nate. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Thank you.